HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Aaron Bresnitz. It feels like summer is in full swing, and we hope that you got behind the grill or had a friend who was behind the grill this week, that you had some delicious food, shared some laughs with friends and family, and had a nice, cool, refreshing drink. We are sitting down right off a of sunset with Charles Namba and Courtney Kaplan of Subaki and Ototo to talk about their recent James Beard win, how they met during their time in the restaurant scene in New York, and what one can expect to hear on a Tuesday night at the bar. And then we head into the archives for a frenetic punk, jubilant performance from Brooklyn's Grim Streaker. They played live for us in the shipping containers in Brooklyn. And we thought it'd be the perfect soundtrack to keep this summer rolling. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
Courtney and Charles, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for joining us. I know it's busy and we're not going to bury the lead because you guys recently won James Beard for Outstanding Bar Program. How does it feel to be on the other side of that just a few weeks later? I think we're still a little bit in shock or at least least (laughs) I am. It was... um... It was really unexpected, and I don't know. It was a, it was a lot to process. I think we're still kind of taking it in and trying to to convince ourselves it's real for me. So I was not going to knock on the door and be like, "Oh, we're just gonna, <laughs> if we could just get that certificate." Back. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a it was a wild feeling for sure. Um, for those who might be a little bit unfamiliar with that specific award. How often does a sake forward program win this category? As far as I know, this is the first time. Um, we actually won. Mm-hmm. No, it's definitely the first time. It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, the category used to be uh, Outstanding Wine Program, and then this year we changed the yep. name to Wine and Other Beverages. So I guess we're we are other beverages. But, yeah, this is the, the first time that anything, any beverage other than wine has been included, which is, uh, feels really cool to, to be a part of. Yeah. It's nice to see that they changed the name and then made good on the name change and just didn't give it to another, (laughs) just wine forward or wine first type of program. Yeah. You know, when we saw the, that we had been nominated, um, we had been nominated once before, I think in 2019 as part of, for a bar program. So I was surprised to see this year when it came out as wine and other beverages, but yeah. It's mm-hmm. cool to see sake get recognition in this way. It's sort of, um, in my opinion, been kind of chronically misunderstood in the U.S. for a long time. So, Yeah, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But I want to go back a bit because you're based in L.A. And Charles, you're born and raised in L.A. Yeah. And um, what was it growing up in the city? What do you remember from eating as a kid? How big was food in your life with your family growing up? Uh, food was huge. You know, my mom... Uh, she made all types of Japanese food and American food. Mm. You know, we ate, uh, bolognese. We had, um, you know, ribs, rack of lamb, sort of all over the place, you know, like, uh, uh, wrapped cabbage. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, we ate out a lot, you know, it was the, it was the best part of the week was, um, going out, you know, and once my mom, she was, she was in real estate. Once she got really, really busy, we started eating out more and more. And um, that was it. That experience and a lot of hamburgers and tacos, you know, pretty much. Mm. Yes. Uh, but LA's food culture, I mean, it had its own, you know, I guess Wolfgang Puck and things like right. that was sort of like what you think of or avocado toast, but it wasn't like what it was today. Nothing. I mean, I... I I went to one French restaurant and I, you know, I didn't know what French food was. I knew about sure. it when I, when I moved to New York and started working in restaurants. And, and Courtney, I, I know that you were in New York working in restaurants as well, but before that you cut your teeth in Tokyo working at restaurants, <laughs> which listen, I, I got to say like getting in to the restaurant scene through a whole different country has got to be, a unique approach. How did you get in? What drew you there? Uh, I was on a study abroad program in Tokyo and I just did a part-time Ooh. job um, in a restaurant really because I first just needed some cash. And also I wanted an opportunity to sort of practice Japanese in like a real Japanese environment. I was there for language. 
primarily. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I it was a, a Hawaiian themed barbecue restaurant. The owner was from Japan, but obsessed with Hawaii. And I think they hired me because they thought having um, an American person on staff would somehow make their Hawaiian concept feel more authentic, although I couldn't be less Hawaiian. And, but uh, but it was great. I mean, the, the food was very simple. It was you put a charcoal grill in the middle of everyone's table, and they got raw ingredients sure. and would grill it themselves. But it was really more of a cultural introduction for me. I'd say uh, it was mm. you know very you know the service was super simple. It was not you know like you know I think we think of Tokyo restaurant culture as sort of this very um, kind of serious thing. This was really just kind of a, a very casual part time job. But no, it was uh, it was a real learning experience. Um, to, to be working abroad and kind of exposed to, to that. Um, uh, you know, as a learning experience, was there anything that you picked up there that you didn't actually see in American culture, restaurant culture when you came back that you still practice and implement today? You know, I, I worked in Jap in Japanese run Japanese restaurants, <clears throat> excuse me, um, for, the majority of the beginning of my career. So it was very similar to working in Japan. My first mm. job in the U.S. was in a sake bar where I was one of only two American staff members. So, you know, the culture, even though we were in New York, it really was sort of like living and working in Japan because sure, everything sure, was very sure. Japanese. I think what I took away <laughs> from it the most really was the work ethic um, for better or worse. Mm. You know, restaurants are kind of grueling demanding jobs with long hours, but I've never seen the out, like the way the work ethic in Japan and, and my Japanese coworkers in the U S um, is still with me today. I think I can never live up to it, but um, I, I try to hold myself oh. to it. Oh, come on. Now, uh, speaking in New York, you were both at restaurants and bars that I remember when I first started getting into food were pretty legendary. Uh, Courtney, you were at Decibel and Charles, you were at Chanterelle, which I think Chanterelle was one of the first restaurants where I was like, there's more to food than just, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like a bodega sandwich. Um, Cause I had this like such big reputation, but what, what brought you to New York and what did you love about being in the restaurant and bar scene at that time? Um, I moved to New York kind of just running away from home. And, um, <laughs> Tales all yeah, the time. I needed a job. Yeah. And um, I, my roommate was like, there's this Japanese restaurant that's opening up. You know, you want to cook over there. And all through high school, I worked in uh, pizzeria. So mm. I enjoyed being in the kitchen more than being in the classroom, you know. So, so yeah. when I moved to New York, I needed a job. It felt very uh, natural, the job. It was mm. very similar to yeah, how I was living in Los Angeles. And, and Courtney, yeah, so what brought you to New York? I grew up on Long Island and I went to school in the oh, city. So sure. I was already living in New York when I went to Japan and then I moved back to finish college. Um, and then I just kind of ended up sticking around. Um, when yeah. I got back from Japan, I really was afraid I was going to lose the language because if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, sure, so sure. that's how I ended up working at Decibel is I had been there to drink underage uh, many times in college. Shout out to New York. <laughs> and to Decibel for being a lawless place back then. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. Um, I just, my friend of mine was like, you know, you want a job where you can speak Japanese? Why don't you see if that sake bar would hire you? So I just called them up and asked for a job. And uh, the manager at the time the interview process was really just like come down and hang out with us. And what kind of music do you like? That was a huge thing. 
because mm-hmm. whoever bartended got to choose the music. Um, so they. Do you remember what you said? I don't. Do you I don't. What? I remember what he said. He was a huge fan of Todd Rundgren, um, and we. Oh. I didn't have a ton of context for it at the time as like a 19 or 20 year old, but uh, uh, I don't remember what I said, but whatever it was, we hit it off. Um, and they ended up hiring me like totally unqualified, like knew nothing about sake. Um, my only restaurant experience had been this like year working in this barbecue restaurant in Tokyo, but they really hired for for vibes there. I think back then, I don't, I don't know what they're doing now. But, um, oh my God. Hiring for vibes. <laughs> if that doesn't really uh, talk about the time in the New York scene and you two actually met uh, working at the same New York restaurant, right? We did at the restaurant that Charles was just referring to called N Japanese Brasserie. Um, mm-hmm. Someone who I knew, my former coworkers from Decibel were asked to kind of help open the restaurant. And then they reached out to me to help mm-hmm. as sort of like a cultural liaison for the chefs who were all coming straight from Japan with like no English mm-hmm. and kind of their first time living abroad. So they need, they wanted help like kind of getting the chefs situated and then for like menu translation and all that. And that's where I met Charles because his his roommate at the time was a former coworker of mine at Decibel as well, who also was the one who was like, I know this Japanese restaurant that's opening. Maybe you should go try to get a job there. So we met. Um, the Japanese community was like very tight in New York. Like all the restaurants, everybody that worked in restaurants, yeah. they knew each other and everybody knew each other. So um, yeah, we'd all hang out after work or go to each other's restaurants. So yeah, when he moved to, when he moved, um, in with this roommate, she suggested he come try to get a job at N, which was just about to open. So that's, yeah, that was how we met. Do you remember that first meeting where you're like, you seem really cool. Do you want to open up a couple (laughs) of restaurants in like a decade or two together? Or was it just, you're my coworker and we're going to work together? I was actually did the interpreting for his interview with the chef. Um, So I sat in on that Mm. and helped there. So we met way back then. Um, And then, yeah, we were, we were, all just kind of friends. We all hung out after work together and Charles was living kind of in Chinatown and he was the, cl- we, the restaurants in the West village and he was the closest apartment to the restaurant. So when we get off work, we'd sure. always go all hang out at his house or after the bar would close, go to his house. Um, yeah. My apartment had basically one, it wasn't even a futon. It was like a two cushion <laughs> seat. I love it. And yep. Every, yeah. Everybody just sat on the floor, like Japanese, you know, drinking beers, and then it just became the spot to to hang out in and stop by whenever you want and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. That that time that you were there in New York was such a special time in the New York restaurant scene. Um, what do you remember fondly about that time? What what still stays with you? Um, it was just uh, a lot of it was you know. Uh, my experience at Chanterelle, really, you know, it's like from mm-hmm. like eating good Chinese, um, decent pots, Italian to working in like a very, you know, high, like high end restaurant, you know, and, and the food was amazing. And it was my first experience uh, tasting food like that. So it's a, it was a special time for me. Yeah. I think also the, the community at that time, like it just felt, so mm-hmm. like, you know, we would get off work and it was like, you we would go to the same restaurants and see the same people and you knew the bartender and the other pe- rest- people from restaurants would come and see us. And it just felt like this really tight knit community. Um, and I think maybe Charles kind of being so far away from home, like there was a real kind of family component. We all hung out on our days off all the time. Like it really, you know, 
every day off, it's like, what restaurant are we going to go to and see what other people are doing? It was like the, the restaurant we worked at, there was four chefs from Japan that flew in to open the restaurant and work at the restaurant. Incredible. So, you know, it was every night. It's like every night. And yeah. like I was 21 and sure. like the sure. culture is for them to pay for your meal. And they knew I was yeah. like, I, you know, I could barely pay rent. So it was right. every night they liked me. So that I come out, let's drink. And we would just drink. And then everybody would show up the next day, no matter what happened and keep working. <laughs> Even a lot of crazy things happen, you know. Yeah, that, that yeah. late East Village, yeah. like Izakaya. I mean, we were just back in New York. I was surprised to see almost all those places are gone. But St. Mark's used to be like all Izakayas, and they all stay open late, and they let us stay extra late. Like they would close, and we would stay and hang out, and yeah, it was fun. Yeah, there's definitely. Look, New York's never going away but there was definitely a, a moment of time when it was just like you work you go out you eat you're up late and no matter what happens you're back in yeah <laughs> um let's take a quick little break and then i want to talk about um heading out to la and the opening of your restaurants and bar we have a song from the archives here on snacky tunes here on heritage radio network Your plan 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Courtney and Charles of Subaki and Ototo here in Los Angeles. So you're in New York. You're grinding it out. When did L.A. start calling to you? Was it that era, like in the aughts, when L.A. was sort of getting on the map culinary? Like, Because I remember L.A. started like popping up a little bit with, with like Animal, R.I.P., yeah recently pour one out and then like joseph's restaurant and like things like that like i started hearing more things about la that was like oh like there's a there's something happening with restaurants out there i feel like the decision was more practical i don't know i think we were we had gotten the bug to that we maybe wanted to open a restaurant and it just maybe Mm. there was more opportunity in la um at that point it's kind of hard to believe now but i think real estate was a more reasonably priced out here. We thought we could maybe open for totally. cheaper. We wouldn't need the same kind of financial backing that I we mean, would that need in New York. I mean, that was the main reason was it'd be cheaper. Yeah. You know, I, I remember even thinking about opening a restaurant back then was it was like a million dollars or more. In New York? Yeah. yeah. In yeah. New York? That's yeah. That's crazy. Time. Well, unless you wanted to do the Bushwick Burrow yeah. thing, which – was you know until Roberta's really did it. Everyone's like, no, it's got to, it's pretty much like Manhattan or Boston. yeah, yeah. So yeah, and you know Charles had grown up here, and I had never lived anywhere outside of like the New York area except for I'm in mm. Tokyo. So we thought like, well, we'll give it a try and like kind of see. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was just that era. It was we moved in 2010, so like Animal, Lazy Ox mm-hmm. downtown, like all those. You know that yeah. was kind of what everybody was talking about. I feel like yeah. That- Bizarre at the SLS. Bizarre in the Highland places like Gordon Ramsay, Michael Mina, yeah. Sean, and then yeah, like Animal. Yeah, a couple. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Places. Yeah. Nothing. I mean, compared. not. Not. No, no, no. no. It, it not relative to today. Yeah. Relative to today, it was just it was a different. It was like name celebrity, you know, and I know. It, Wolfgang Puck, not to make a joke from before, but like that's what I thought of. I was like, oh, you're just another celebrity avenue, just celebrity Mm -hmm. chef. Um, But you come out here, and what was the food community like? Because obviously, you said in the first part, New York food community was firing on all cylinders. Mm -hmm. Was there a group of people here? What restaurants did you get into? Like, how did you start to find your footing out in Los Angeles? Um, When I was in New York, I I was. I was planning to work at, I got offered a job at 11 Madison Park mm. or Cafe Palou or Bouchon sure. or Beverly Hills. And mm-hmm. um, we wanted to move to Los Angeles. And I thought that's a great restaurant. It is a great restaurant to work at Thomas Keller for. Um, so I moved out there to open Bouchon. And um, yeah, that was another part of the reason why we moved out here. The goal was to open a restaurant. But he was opening a restaurant in Beverly Hills. I was like, perfect. I'll um, work there in the time being. And did you find that similar food community that you had in New York? Or was it still was it a little spread out? No, it was. I, th- I think it was very, very small because there was just fewer restaurants. Mm-hmm. Now there's so many that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like when we opened Bouchon, so many people came from Animal. Sure. Michael sure. Mina. Um, what's the name? Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. Uh, it was small, you know, it's like think of that place, yeah. the next place. Um, yeah. And everybody would go to red medicine after. Work, all, right? 
Oh, yes, Red Medicine. Medicine One of the only spots that was openly. I feel like that was the biggest challenge in L.A. is the driving and then everything closes early. So it was harder to find, you know, we get off work. There's not as many options here, I think, as there are in New York. Um, But, yeah, I remember going to Red Medicine or Koreatown a lot. Those were kind of the places to be, I think, post-service. So seeing that opportunity, comparing it to New York, because New York was – you know, late and everything open, did that start to inform what the first, what your restaurant would be saying like, okay, I see these things that we love and that we had access to in New York, but it's sort of missing from LA. Did that start to form the opinion of, of what, what your spot could, could eventually open to? You know, when we were thinking about Tsubaki, which was our, is our first restaurant, Charles just kept saying, I want this to be a place where the chefs are going to want to come. And mm. it's really, you know, we do see that a lot. A lot of chefs do come and eat with us, um, yeah. which is is really cool to see. Like, it's nice to be part of that community. Um, I think, you know, we never were open particularly late, but I think what, for me at least, like what I, what I saw was maybe we could offer sort of diversity in beverage that we were not seeing as much of out here. Like we were coming from New York, all these like really amazing sake focused restaurants. And I feel like I wasn't seeing as much of that out here. So maybe room for mm-hmm. that and i think for charles it was really creating this menu that like chefs really wanted to eat on their days off i don't know how <laughs> how that came to be it felt really organic but yeah it's um it did, it did. yeah said it well <laughs> <laughs> so opening the spot um right off a of sunset i mean we can get it's it's like I don't want to confuse people because let's just call it sunset right near Dodger Stadium for anyone who's trying to find a, a geographical location. It's it, um, Google Maps might pull you off the street a little bit, but we won't get into that. So you open up in that area, um, which is far removed from other sort of Japanese restaurants in the city. You know, it's not Sautel. You know, it's not it's not the Valley. What was the reaction like in the neighborhood? How much education did you have to give to people for skewers? Like, what was it to open up in the community, especially since you wanted to have this like neighborhood izakaya spot? I think the community reaction was good. Um, there was a lot of confusion in the beginning because we actually took over for another Japanese restaurant that had been there before. Yes. Yep. That was also yeah. a, a skewers concept. When we opened, we weren't doing as much. We were grill focused, but not as many skewers. Like sure, a lot of, of people would come in and were very confused why we didn't have the same menu that they had. Um, and then I think also a lot of questions about like, where's your sushi menu and what kind of ramen do you yeah. have? Um, but for the most part, I think the neighborhood um, has been really supportive of us. We get a lot of people who come mm-hmm. in and say they walk to see us. Um, there definitely was a learning curve in the beginning. Um, and it still happens once in a while we get someone um, oftentimes we get people from who are staying in the hotel. There's like a super eight motel across. Yeah. yeah, yeah They're like yeah. very confused as to what we're serving. Um, but at its heart, I think the food is really accessible. Um, it's just a question of what people's expectations are when they're coming in. But mm. yeah, we were, we were, you know, burger and a beer. <laughs> that's what Toto would say about you. But um, yeah, I mean, I often, when we talk, when we hire new staff, I often tell them, you know, I really think I credit the survival of the restaurant to, to having regulars, like, you know, 100%. when we first opened, no one knew who we were. Um, we were not like, you know, name brands in L.A. or anywhere. Um, and, you know, we had people who really would come once a week and sit at the same table or the same seats at the mm. bar. And 
we had four servers total on the roster and they, they knew all the servers because they all, you know, everybody, it's the same people working every night. Um, and I really, you know, the restaurant wouldn't have survived that first year if we hadn't had a lot of loyalty from, from our regulars in the neighborhood. That's what I remember. All regulars that knew everybody working and we were such a small team. Yeah. Yeah. We only had 30, we had 33 seats and it yeah. definitely feels different now. It does feel different now, but yeah. yeah. So much success I've found, especially in LA, is the idea of having regulars and being a neighborhood spot because, look, the press come and goes, the articles come and go. It's just like, and look, you you obviously just won a big award, but that's not what keeps the, the lights on or people come, you know, it's people coming month to month. But I've also found that, especially in LA, like real estate <laughs> and, and like sort of like the kismet of real estate. Um, plays a big part as well of like what corner you open on location, things like that. And I feel like so much of that is what led to a Toto. Cause I remember there was a salon there and I remember the salon there because my wife used to go to that <laughs> oh, salon a- and, and she was like, it's closing. And I think there's like a, a sake bar opening. Yeah. Or something <laughs> there. And I was like, I was like, what? Why? But tell me the story from how that happened. And were you always thinking about opening up, a sister spot? No, I feel like I'm. Thinking about <laughs> we had op- we opened on February second, and I feel I think on like February third, our landlord called and was like, "Hey, the salon next door is moving out. Do you want it?" And we were like, in a blackout state. We were like, you know, hadn't slept in weeks, and we're exhausted. And oh, literally the I mean, day after. Subaki. In my memory, yes, it was within. It was it you within. Just said the date. I know. It was within the. No, no, no. Perfect story. Sorry, go on, go on, go on, go on. It was yeah, definitely yeah. in the very first couple of weeks. But, and we just said, yes, we had like no concept. We're like, yes, why not? Sure. Like, how often does this opportunity come along? We looked for like three years for the Tsubaki space and to have another space kind of fall into our lap. Like, so, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what, that, what yeah. Chances? yeah. Um, and we had no, no ideas for it. We had thought like, maybe we'll turn it into a, like a lunch place and do like rice mm. bowls. We talked about doing like a wine bar. And then I think we sort of realized like Tsubaki is very small, which is um, part of the appeal of it, I think. But it's also a challenge from a business perspective. And we were finding that like during peak hours, we didn't have enough room to seat as many people Mm. as we could have. Um, And oftentimes if tables didn't turn properly, we had nowhere to have people wait, which was a problem too. And we thought, well, if we open a bar and we're running 10 minutes behind on someone's table, here's a place where they can go grab a drink. Um, Instead of oftentimes they would go to button mash or something across the street and just never come back. If, you know, if we were, if they were waiting. Right. Uh, Play pinball. I got some, some, some rice balls or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and then we sort of, you know, when we first opened Tsubaki, the plan was to do, a, a sake program, um, really focusing on like smaller producers and smaller kind of family run craft breweries. And I, we were not sure how it was going to go. A lot of, um, I remember talking to one of my importers and he was like, you need to put some big names on your list. He's like, you're, no one's going to order this stuff. Like no one's ever heard of these breweries. You need to make sure you're serving Kurosawa or Kikusi or Hakkai-san, which are all great breweries, but we really, you know, that wasn't sure. the focus. Um, but we found after we opened that people in LA were super excited about trying new things and really wanted to try things they had never had before. Um, and I don't know. We just thought like maybe there's room for sake here. Like maybe we could do like a real concept built around sake. Um, I think without Tsubaki, I don't know if we would have had the courage to do it, like to kind of roll the dice on, on it, but 
we saw how much people were coming in to drink sake and it was really inspiring. Yeah, it's great. It worked out well. Let me ask a question though, and I know you you named some of the big heavy hitters in, in the soccer world, but you also said earlier that like there's still a lot of education around sake and there hasn't been a ton of stuff like that. People coming in, how many of them even who you know know the big hitters? They're just like, oh, I hear sake, and I'm coming in for an education, and I small brewers, big brewer, new brewer, like. How many people are just like, just, just take me under your tutelage and guide A lot that? of people, um, you know, the number one thing people say when we ask, you know, can I bring you something to drink is I don't know anything about sake. Like everyone wants to like right. start with that, which right, is right, like right. totally fair. I never expect anyone to know anything. Um, and we're, you know, we really work with our team to like, you know, how can we provide like fun education and get people excited about it? Um, but there are people, if they have had sake, a lot of people have had you know, sure. or dasai, or they'll have a picture on their phone and they'll show us, like, here's a sake I had at my right. sushi, local sushi restaurant, um, which is really helpful information because then we can know, oh, you like, you know, we, we like this style. Here's something else that you might enjoy as well. It's really good as a starting point. Um, but there's never any time where someone's like, oh, you don't have this bottle. I'm not, I don't want anything. You know? <laughs> right. I'm out. Exactly. I'm out. And I think yeah, in yeah, some yeah. ways I've, I've worked with wine over the course of my career too. And I find that with wine, people have pretty strong opinions about what they like and what they don't mm. like. And it can be, it can be more challenging to get our guests to like take a risk or try something new or try something they think they don't like. Whereas with sake, oftentimes we really are, have a blank slate where we have kind of free reign to sort of pour whatever we want and people don't come in with as many preconceptions. Um, there still are some in the sake world, but I find it's a lot easier to get guests to like take a risk or take a chance on something because they're not, um, they're, they're more in your hands, I think. I, I mean, I felt, because when I was in the other week, it felt very in your hands, because even I tried stuff and I felt comfortable being like, no, this is not my vibe and you didn't make me feel, um, I don't know, insecure about it, even though not knowing what to order next. But the whole vibe was so inviting, like the music was blasting, it felt very young and cool and hip and just, it's got this unique feel to it that's like coming in and we're going to take care of you. Um and I really like that because I don't, you know, most of the time it's like sake in so many places I felt like at times have been like an afterthought and not front and center. And and to go in and get an education felt really important and, and really exciting. That's great to hear. I mean, that really, we really want to make it accessible. That's kind of the what we talk about a lot is like, how do we make it fun mm. and accessible? Like not stuffy, not intimidating. You know, we use like all purpose glassware. Like we really try to sort of make it like an easy, an easy thing. Um, we had talked a lot about like, can we make a sake bar that people use like a wine bar? Like nobody gets nervous going into a wine bar to order a glass of wine and a you know, plate. No. And like, can we do the same thing with sake where there's like, take out all the intimidation, just make it like, oh, this is the bar where I'm going to meet my friend and they happen to serve a bunch of sake there. Um, and if you want education, we've got it. But if you don't, if you just kind of want to come and sit and have a glass of something and not think about it again, like that's totally fine too. Now, one of the things I noticed as well uh, is that music played a big part um, in the experience there. What can people expect on the soundtrack? What are you playing? I know I know each night sometimes has a different vibe. So lately we've been doing J-pop every Tuesday, um, a lot of 90s J-pop because that's kind of my era. But um, trying to like, you know, bring sort of a fun Japanese theme to it. And then, you know, honestly, the staff controls the, my staff controls the music most of the night. So whatever their feeling mm. tends to be, um, whoever's working, whoever's working, they yeah. control the Sonos. But, um, 
Just, just like Neville, <laughs> just right, full circle, right? You know, yeah. it keeps it fun for them, and they're a lot younger than I am, and most of them at this point are more in touch with what's going on with music. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, Charles always is coming out into the dining room and saying, turn the music up. So we do play it pretty loud um, to, you know, make it fun. Definitely. It's a fun place to drink and, and delicious food. So, you know, <laughs> it's like a party. Uh, so looking towards the future and partying and eating with you, you have the James Beard, you have these two beloved spots, your neighborhood spots. What's the future look like? What are you hopeful for? What do you want to see as the restaurant and the bar evolve? It's a good question. I think for the current restaurants, I think, you know, Tabaki now is six years old, six and a half years old. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe for us at least. <laughs> but, um, you know, thinking about ways to to kind of keep it updated. Um, you know, mm. Like the menus at both restaurants are very seasonal. So we're really kind of focusing on how do we kind of push the creativity with seasonal ingredients Mm-hmm, Everything mm-hmm. at Tsubaki is within the framework of a Japanese izakaya, but it's a pretty L.A. menu. Um, lot, yes. A lot of other influences as yeah. well. It's not kind of dogmatically Japanese. Um, so I think, you know, really just trying to to keep it as fresh as possible. Um, I think with Ototo for me, really trying to do more like fun sake education. We have a, we've had a lot of brewers coming to town lately, so we're doing a lot of events mm. with them. Like really putting a, a face to sake is something that, I would like to try to do more of like getting the guests to actually meet the people behind it. Like it's a labor of love to make sake and it's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. So to actually like meet the people um, who, who created, I think is like a really gratifying thing for a lot of our, our guests and for our staff too, who get super excited when they get to meet the people who make their favorite bottles. I don't know. What do you think is next for the restaurants? For the restaurants? Yeah. Um, it's just changing, you know, getting, getting better. You know, I always feel like it, you can always get better. And, you know, Ototo, I feel like it's like you could have a full dinner there. And sometimes people think of it as just a bar. But uh, you, yeah. could, you could have a, I mean, right now we were we were doing a, uh, a, a Wagyu steak, you know. People are coming in eating Wagyu steak uh, for two. Um, and, yeah, definitely grow, you know, do something bigger, um, a bigger restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I had full dinner there and drink. Right? <laughs> it was great. And learned. And Anne was telling me all about that. She's like, oh, this J-pop song. This J-pop song. Yeah. Um, well, listen, congratulations to you both. If people want to visit um, or get more information about the restaurants or see what's going on or maybe what you're pouring, where can they go? The best place to stay in touch with what we're doing is our Instagram. So Tsubaki LA mm-hmm. and then Ototo.LA because um, those tend to be – the most updated. Um, so yeah, I would recommend seeing what we're doing on Instagram. We tend to post all of our events and menu changes and all that stuff there. Amazing. Well, listen, congratulations. Thank you, Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Thanks to Anne for setting this up. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. It's so quiet in my room I got the darkest view tonight Looking out my window At the tears rolling down the hillside 
super awesome thank you heritage welcome back we have grim streaker live in studio welcome to the show all five of you hello hello hey there's a very appropriate grim reaper eating pizza t-shirt that is made they say pie till i die oh my god so that actually might might be the most relevant t-shirt in the entire eight years (laughs) that have happened so thanks for coming it's really great to see all of you uh, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, do you want to maybe go around the room since there's a, a myriad of you and introduce yourselves? Shout it out. I'm Bill. I play bass. I'm Pial. I play drums. Dan. I'm on guitar. Amelia. A shriek. Mike. A guitar. And I know the two of you yeah. from over the years, which yeah. is always rad. So good to see you two again. You too. And whatever inc- incarnation it is of music. Uh, how did you form as this amazing group of musicians? 
We met on Craigslist. As one does. The adult personal section. Yeah, of exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a trick question because I already knew that. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're, uh, we're all from various bands that sort of came together. What's yeah, our story? Yeah, mostly through, like, just the local music yeah. community. Uh, Bill and Micah were doing a music video for my other band. And then... Uh, Which band was that? Uh, Dino Walrus. Um, and then me and P.L. used to play in another, like, kind of power pop punk band a couple years ago too and you know we just kind of all started throwing this together a little drunkenly and then uh and then we grabbed amelia well i Um, got really jealous (laughs) yeah i want to be in a a new band and uh, dan was like okay well you can like audition i go (laughs) did you oh did you really have to audition yeah yeah how yeah. did that go? What did you have to sing? Oh, I, I nailed it. No, I'm just, obviously, because you're standing <laughs> there. But... It was like train of thought, just like yelling. <laughs> it wasn't like, much. I'm going to be performing Susie and the Banshees for you today. No, I literally... <laughs> should have made her do I that, I would be though. totally into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we just bonded over a love of like 70s and 80s punk, hardcore, and... Not there's not a ton of bands in this particular scene that do this. So yeah, I mean the, the sound is really interesting because there's this you know there's the '80s stuff and then there's also the '70s that come from New York and DC and LA. How did you decide to take arguably the best elements of it and and merge it together and not also while sounding like you're just kind of playing on the past? Sure, I mean I think I think it's just like having a a broad spectrum of influences and just feeling like there's certain thing like certain things that I'm not really seeing in like music today. Um, the other thing too is like, I, I'm from LA. So I, I started to feel like after being here a few years, like a little nostalgia for like uh, certain parts of like, um, just like surf and skate culture from like, from there, but it's obviously like non-existent nowadays. So like trying to bring that back into like music or something creative that I'm doing. Um, and then I think like each of us have like our own like specific like influence or like thing that kind of twists it just like a little bit further and then just I feel like just ends up being whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, Who were some of the bands that you brought to the table as reference points when you were writing your first round of songs? Um, I'd probably say like when we were just even talking about being a band, I was like, um, let's do something like black flag yeah adolescence um, adolescence yeah. and like the dead kennedys the dead boys yeah and like yeah maybe like from the 70s stuff like the dead boys for sure yeah um and then when i joined it was like x and yeah, then like x. karano kind of yeah. like early karano x respects like, slips yeah like even white long like more modern stuff definitely so like a lot of yeah. a lot of yeah like modern stuff i feel like I really love, like, a lot of us love, like, A Place to Bury Strangers or, like, kind of bands like that. And then I, I definitely, like, from my other band, have a lot of, like, and Amelia, too, like, shoegaze influences and stuff like that, like, which it's not, like, super apparent, but I think, like, with a couple things, we, like, try to, like... Flourishes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always interesting when you find bands that, like, oh, yeah, I'm into, like, Latin jazz. Yeah, they're a hardcore yeah. band and then you're like oh actually you know what I can kind of hear that now that you say it it's like buried super deep but yeah. like the intentions and the emotions that come through that music that otherwise are not in any of the bands that, in, that, that reference it that kind of come in you, you can actually hear it and, and de- definitely during soundcheck I heard so much shoegaze stuff yeah, yeah. yeah. 
just looked at my feet the entire time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I have to do that yeah. every moment. Want yeah, to do that while also like moshing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, that's that's the most difficult part is like trying to shoegaze and then like move around and like jump around like a punk band. It's impossible. This shit. You breaks can't go too far from your pedals, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the Cash creative that's the creative constraints that we give ourselves to make new art. Right. <laughs> Can we hear a song. Yeah. What are you going to play for us first? Our shoegaze hit, Tina's. (laughs) About a local restaurant. Tina's is about, yeah, local diner. Um, Local diner just around uh, the corner from Roberta's uh, called Tina's, which is you'll never see open unless you're out and about at like 3 a.m. Perfect. Well, here we are with Grim Shrieker live on Snacky Tunes. I think most of our 
I think most of our listeners would be surprised to know that you put out an EP this summer that was four songs and clocked in under 10, 10 minutes. I think they would be shocked, shocked at that. How did Girl Minority come to pass? Uh, where did you record it? What's the story? We recorded it at a Diamond City studio with Ayad Alarami. Uh, really and great. Joel and Joel uh, Whitmer. Two great, uh, great producers and now buddy, super good buddies of ours. Yeah. Diamond City Studios is an amazing space. We tracked live, did it in, what, a week? Yeah. And what was the writing process? I mean, you guys are not a particularly old, um, you're new. You're new as a group. Yeah, definitely. So what did the process come? Was it, I don't want to say stream of concerts, but was it written in studio? Were you prepped before? Did it kind of come together in there? Oh, we definitely had like all of that done before. I think, you know, our first like spurt of like writing music, we wrote a lot of songs and it was just about like patience with like, putting out a single, seeing, like, where it lands, and then, like, trying to work on something small, like an EP. Um, yeah, and then just, like, going for it. Yeah, songs really usually start with a riff someone brings to the table, and then Amelia just sort of figures out something to put over it, and then we attach it all. And... Yeah, but I think the record is uh, is pretty close to what we do live. I think that was one of the goals. Yeah. I mean, that's always the, the most disappointing thing when you see a band that just rips live. And then you get their record and you go, what What happened? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I know. I remember, uh, this is not the case anymore, but when I saw the gossip years ago, it took them like a few records to kind of figure out how yeah. to get the live sound. It, yeah. yeah. I remember it sounded very like sort of processed and clean. Yeah. yeah. And then they did right. movement. But I remember seeing them. I was like, bought the record. I was like, I'm so excited. And I was so disappointed. Yeah. And so um, what do you feel that you did in there? Or what did your producers do that was able to kind of capture the, the live sound besides just tracking live? Uh, I mean, Ayad's great at just, like, sound in general, and his energy in the studio really, like, encourages us to go a little crazier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, when I was recording vocals, I was literally jumping around the room. Yeah. As I would live, so he it also- was, like, it, instead of having, like, a mic in front of me, he was like, you, you have to have a handheld mic. And so I had a handheld mic and was just jumping around. So it was yeah. very much, like, as we do live. Yeah. So that really helped to kind of get in the same. He also like, made us play songs faster just for the hell of it. He was like, you're going to play this faster whether you like it or not. Just for fun. And no, then we'd get amped up and it would like reflect in the sound, which I thought was, yeah. was cool. They also uh, mix and produce in lab coats. Yeah, that, yeah, that was. No way. Yeah, that was yeah, awesome. Yeah. How professional lab coat are we talking about here? They look like. Very. Like it was very scientific. Surgery. Pristine. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're here to take a specimen. Yeah. Oh, really? I'll take that appendix if you don't need it. Uh, do they have their names on the lab coats? That's a good question. No, but that would be a nice Christmas present to them. Yeah, that's like the touch. <laughs> yeah, totally. They should turn this off now or stop listening. So <laughs> you can all surprise Noted. Them. Can we hear another song? Yeah. yeah. What are you yeah, going to play sure. for us? Our first single. Oh. Do Gots. tell. <laughs> so back in January, we put out, we only had one song as a band, but we knew it was like the beginning of something. Did you, when you wrote that first song, I mean, from time to time, bands will be like, they'll just write that first song, like, yeah, this is something. Did, was it, did it come from the rift or did it have to get all put together for you to know? Or like, was it from first, was it love at first rift? That one was pretty much, yeah, love at first rift. It was totally spontaneous, actually. Like, it wasn't like someone came to this, like, practice or something and brought it. Me, Micah, and Bill just got really drunk 
and then just wrote that thing, <laughs> yeah. like, randomly. And then, and then Amelia came Amelia in came destroyed. in unprepared and, like, wrote it all I don't know what the words even were coming out of my mouth, and they just came out, and then that was a song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the first song we ever wrote, so Guts. that was super spontaneous. Perfect. What's it called? Guts. Guts. All right, here we go. Guts, live on Snacking Tunes. <laughs> You guys just put out another single called Kiss on Glass Note, which is super rad. How did that come about? And it's a really amazing comp as well for emerging NYC bands, right? Oh my god, I love that comp. I love so many of the so many of those bands. Petite League, Your Dog, Plain Thick. Dog, yeah. Thick. Your Dog and Plain Dog? Yeah. Two dogs. Oh, Thick. Two dogs. Yeah. Thick and is rad. Annie Hart, who is on right before, was like, you have to get Thick on. Yeah, they're yeah. Awesome. yeah, they're awesome. They're to. good friends of ours. Oh. Yeah, that's yeah. dope. We'll trade emails. Yeah. yeah, great. How did that come about, or how did you get approached by Glassnote for it? A super shady Facebook message. No way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, I thought it was like a scam, you know? It's like you Nigerian send a, prince like, You send us one you. song, yeah. we'll give you record record contract. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. what was so shady about it? I don't know. You know, most of your Facebook messages are like usually a lot of spam anyways. Right. So, um 
also like hitting up through Facebook. Like I definitely found you guys through email, and I also know you, but like email better than Facebook. Yeah, yeah, that, that that too. It's like it's not like we're hiding our email address. So you actually wouldn't believe um, how many bands make it really difficult to get a hold of them. Yeah. that should not make it so difficult. As <laughs> yeah. a word of uh, advice, bands in yeah. nature just don't know to check. Right. Emails and correspondence. <laughs> yeah. Fair, okay. Fair point. So how did it come about? And, you know, did you, was it a song that you had on hold or did you record it specifically for the conf? Well, I mean, we had it in our in our live set, but yeah. we hadn't really recorded it yet. So this was a perfect opportunity to uh, give them something that wasn't on the EP. Yeah. Basically, we were considering putting something from the EP on it. But just given like the timeline and stuff, we ended up just deciding like we wanted to put this out anyways. And seemed like a good standalone single so like a couple days before it was like due we just like went into the studio one night and just like played to like 3 a.m and like tracked it yeah um all in one yeah there you go perfect uh and speaking of more recording you're working on a full length that's going to come out maybe end of this year early next year definitely next year definitely next year we're still writing (laughs) still right and what's the process um is it still just like rift or is it like a ball from the ep or or especially i know you work a lot of your stuff into your live sets as well yeah yeah definitely i i think um you know we're starting to like actually create like more cohesion around like what we're doing and make it a little bit yeah. slightly more conceptual. I mean, as, as you can't like as much as you can be for a punk band. Yeah. I think we've realized that like the post-punk thing is a good fit for us sometimes like going between hardcore post-punk a little bit of like, yeah, yeah. It's, Nothing wrong with a little melody. Yeah. Yeah. It's like find the common ground. between. Yeah. We're kind of trying to progress a little bit too yeah. with our sound. Like, even though it's obviously we only have been around for a short amount of time, but like, evolving from like that starting point we were talking about and kind of integrating some other influences too like maybe yeah like more post-punk yeah. stuff like yeah. sonic youth and like song in the works it's got like a television vibe and then it gets really fast <laughs> yeah and also the yeah. more also the more we write i feel more inspired to go to other shows and to then get even further inspired by other bands that are playing and come back to the practice space and yeah. try out new things and it's it's yeah i just honestly like it's just really enjoyable being in this band oh little love yeah. fest i mean it's also great to just be influenced <laughs> by your peers i mean that was so great about the late 70s in new york city is that yeah. they were all just watching each other and then super into each other and then trying yeah. to not beat each other or best yeah. each other but a exactly. healthy there's competition like, everyone was so creative and experimental they were yeah. like there's no limits let's just do what we feel is right yeah, yeah we'll just make something new yeah yeah like, we like that we'll just do something else. And then it became formulaic later on. But. Yeah. yeah. And then you gotta then you gotta break the mold. Yeah. Yeah, uh, then we'll go pop. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> we probably will. Uh you have a few shows coming up too. Some of them are super exciting. Yeah. We got uh Rough, Rough Trade, Trade Mono Gold release on Saturday the twenty third. Then we're I mean yeah, you know, we're Bill and Dan. playing with the vibrators. Yeah, I mean, are you dying a little bit yeah, inside? We, grew up, a little we bit. grew up listening to those guys, you know, teenage like seventies punk favorites. Will you be on the side of the stage or in the pit? No. I don't I know mean, if the vibrators can have much. Yeah, of a I think pit. they're a little too power poppy <laughs> yeah. for a pit, especially yeah. for how many I'm guessing like older people will be there yeah. too. But you, you never know. You you, know it could now. be like the one I night might, that I like, might throw my bra on stage. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But you never know. It could be the night that like dad gets back in there. Oh, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, if we can win over some dads who were there back in the day, mission yeah. accomplished. Like yeah. my <laughs> my cousin is definitely at Riot Fest right now, watching like Jawbreaker oh, and, yeah. and oh, all this yeah. stuff, and he is having his best yes. weekend <laughs> ever. We he went last year for the Misfits reunion. Yeah, he's like 
All dads. Just got rid of the kids, went to Chicago, and is just living <laughs> just living his uh, his best weekend. And we'll pull on that for many, many, many moons to come. Totally. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I want to make sure we have one more song from your canon, if you will. Uh, but where can people find you, get the EP, hear uh, new stuff? You can get it on Bandcamp, Grimstreaker, <laughs> grimstreaker.bandcamp.com. We have uh, it on digital and then also... Tapes. on tape there's about like we did a limited run of like 100 and there's a little less than like 40 left so you can grab one for like six bucks get on it love band yeah. camp or just come to the show oh yeah. even better or come yeah. find us at roberta's in 20 minutes oh yeah, yeah. even yeah. <laughs> even better uh well thank you for being on here big shout out to my brother out there on the west coast uh what are you going to take us out with a new song. Babysitter. A new song? A new oh, song. yeah. Oh. Babysitter. Yeah, this one's good. Babysitter. Well, thank you for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.